Hey there, it's Tyson Sharp here, and if you're looking to move from fear into love and truly start to align with the divine, especially in business, this is the episode for you. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to the Awaken Your Business podcast. My name's Tyson Sharp, and if it's also your mission to heighten consciousness, yes, you are a light worker. And it's in this podcast where you execute that heart's mission by integrating your spiritual and business growth. This is what I call stepping into the role of the heart-centered CEO. This is the version of you who knows the numbers, you know how to grow an audience, you know how to create more impact and more income, but every business strategy is done through the filter of love, compassion, consciousness, and contribution. So when you're ready, take a deep breath, and I'll see you on the inside. Hello to you and welcome back to another episode of the Awaken Your Business podcast. As you know, my name is Tyson Sharp. I have Karen Kenny here, the famous KK. She's in the serving circle and she's a delight. She's such a treat. The reason why I have her on here and the reason why this is such a powerful conversation is not only because we all have the fears that come up, we all have the doubts that come up, and sometimes we can sit in our silence and truly start to feel that we're not really connected to our divine we're forgetting that we're truly connected to something that's greater and that's what this conversation is all about this conversation is all about how you can align with the divine even if you're looking to just spiritually integrate something into your life or if you're looking to connect if you're looking to connect at a deeper level this is the interview for you one thing that really resonated with me in this karen will share her story and it is such a heartfelt story of real tragedy and real heartbreak into not only forgiveness and compassion, but love. And what you'll hear is her story of how her mother was murdered and the spiritual journey she was able to go on because of it and what it means now for her. And as you start to hear her story, what you'll find is a little tidbits of information of how you can control your own story, how you can align with the divine, how you can choose love over fear, and truly how you can integrate this as a spiritual practice into your life and take your business to the next level. So let me read a little bit of an intro about about Karen. Obviously, you guys are excited to hear, but Karen is a certified spiritual mentor, author, speaker, and host of the Karen Kenny Show, which is her podcast. She's the founder of The Nest, which is an online spiritual membership and a community. And she's been a student of and a guide for A Course of Miracles for over three decades. She's a yoga teacher for over 20 years and a longtime practitioner of, a pa- the, of passage meditation. Now, this will all come through as you hear her story. She has a signature process that's called uh, Your Story your, to Your Glory. And it's truly just this conscious way of looking at your life and a conscious way of deepening the connection with yourself and deepening the connection with source, with spirit. And what you'll find is that if you can take a little bit of information here and start to apply it in your life, start to apply it to your business, start to apply how you start to see and interact with other people, you will find your life transform. You will find everything start to mold and start to match the way you feel internally and if that doesn't lead to more success, more fulfillment, right, more impact, I don't know what will. So I know you're, really, you're ready to dive into this. So I won't leave you waiting any longer. Here is Karen, and uh, I hope you enjoy the process. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Awaken Your Business podcast. Karen's already <laughs> waving to everyone. It's, it's, it's exciting to be here. I've, in the short time, I've got to know Karen things just align. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you can describe it in, uh, in your own way, but things feel very aligned, not only in terms of energy, not only in terms of what we're talking and sharing, but we're both into building communities and sharing spiritual wisdom through the, through the God-like consciousness that's flowing through all of us. And I think that is what we're doing here. And as I, as I was talking to Karen just before, she's saying, I think what most people need right now is just authenticity, vulnerability, openness, everything like that. And as soon as you can listen to this, no doubt, if you apply any of the stuff that you're about to listen to, your life will transform. And that's what I feel is 
is, is in our spiritual guidance right now to hear some wisdom, some true wisdom from authenticity and vulnerability, applying that in our personal lives and in our, in our business creates huge transformation. So Karen, first of all, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. I already know we're going to have an awesome time, <laughs> but feel free to share. As everyone asks, what's your, what's your story? How did you get to be a spiritual mentor? How did you get to doing everything you do now? Well, Tyson, first of all, thank you so much, brother, for having me. I'm wicked excited. And it was kismet. I think it was just kind of like divine intervention. Uh, a couple of mutual friends of ours were like, you two have to meet. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and we did. And we, we just randomly, we, we, we made an appointment, we chatted, and it was just like, boom, like meant to be. So here we are. And I never, ever, ever, I say it every time, I, I do not take it for granted when people invite me into their world, into the hats and ears and homes of their listeners. It's one of the highest compliments I think we can get paid is when somebody trusts us enough with the care of those they care about. So just thank you so much for having me, number one. And here's the other thing I'm just going to warn you. I can take a very short question and turn it into a wicked long answer. So don't be afraid if you want to stop me or interject or go ask me to go deeper or pause, take a breath, because I'm a storyteller and once I go, I go. So don't be afraid to rein me in or stop me. Okay. So how did I become a spiritual mentor? I always say like, we got to start at the beginning. I think so often when um, you become like, I'm 52. So I've been around for a little bit. Okay. And I think that when you get to be at a particular point in your professional life or just in your life or whatever, um, and people are like, how did you, you know, and they invite you on a show or on a stage or whatever, they're always leading with who you are now. And I'm always like, well, before we can talk about me at 52, we have to like go back and be like, where did this kid? come from right like what happened because nobody really wakes up and says especially me a kid from lawrence massachusetts a kid from boston nobody like if you would have told me i was going to be a spiritual mentor i would have laughed in your face it would have been the most preposterous thing so i'll try to do the cliff notes version right of like how i ended up here so bottom line is i grew up in a little city, Lawrence, Mass., which is like, like seven miles wide, but it was like an immigrant city. It was a mill city. It was right on the river. So it was a textile mill. Um, and it's like 30 miles north of Boston. And it's a tough little city, right? And it was a, you know, I always say there was like the anticipation of violence was kind of like always there. And, um, and my mother and my biological father got divorced when I was two. And then immediately the guy that ended up becoming my stepfather uh, came onto the scene when I was like three. So I didn't really know, I didn't know my biological father. And at that age, like all you know is the guy who's in front of you. You don't remember the one who was there for those, you know, those very first beginning years. And so my mother and my stepfather, you know, my mother had me when she was 20. I had my sister when she was like 18, you know, about to turn 19. So young parents, it was like babies having babies. And so even though my parents were like wicked smart, in a lot of ways, they were really dumb with like money, communication, responsibility sometimes. So I grew up in a war zone. My parents were constantly fighting because you got to remember, like we're talking like 20 year olds, 21, 22, 23, like, you know, knuckleheads, like where, you know, even when we think, we think we know everything, but we really know nothing at that age in a lot of ways. So constantly fighting, like whatever, My, they were constantly getting separated. So it was very volatile. I didn't really feel very safe. And my mother though, my mother was like the, uh, Oh, she was like the sun to my personal little planetary universe. Like she was the thing I revolved around. And she was the thing that anchored me kind of in my body, anchored me in this time and space because she was one of those people who truly saw me. Like she saw me, she heard me, she got me. Um, and I felt seen and loved like by her. And that, that's a gift. Like I just think, like I always say, like we didn't always have food in the house. We didn't always have the things we needed, but I knew my mother loved me. And that's a, that's a game, you know, that's a game changer for a little kid. But so my parents, during one of these times when my parents, my mother and my stepfather were separated uh, for the like gazillionth time, my mother was, you know, a single mother. We're living in this, you know, double decker apartment uh, in Lawrence. And um, my mother goes out one night um, and she, which she often did. I was 12 at the time. My sister was 13, about to turn 14, like a week away from her birthday. 
Um, my mother went out at night. She was supposed to meet some friends out, go bowling, whatever. And then, you know, she would normally come home around like 11 or midnight or whatever it was. And uh, Mrs. Turgeon, who lived downstairs, my sister's best friend also lived downstairs. She was like keeping an eye on us, but we were like, oh, we don't need a babysitter. We're so cool, right? But we were, you know, they were keeping an eye on us. But my mother did not come home that night. We woke up. We didn't know that when we went to bed. I just woke up the next morning and she was missing uh, and her car wasn't out front. There was no coffee, you know, cup on the counter, no cigarettes in the ashtray. And it was just like really strange. Her bed had not been slept in. So my sister, you know, I was a very naive 12 year old. My sister was a very smart, like 13 year old. And she sent me to school and she just said, you know, go to school. I don't feel good. I'm staying home. So she pretended to play hooky, but she was really just like pissed and waiting for my mother, you know, to get home. And she's like, wherever she is, she's going to have to come home and change before work. And like, I'm going to give it to her like that type of a thing. But she just never came home. So lo and behold, I'll kind of skip all the details, but lo and behold, my stepfather showed up later that afternoon after school. Um, well, I was at school and my sister was at home doing a bunch of things like trying to find my mother. Um, and it's, it's an intense thing for a 13 year old to like have to do. Uh, long story short, my father showed up, my stepfather showed up. We hadn't seen him in months because they were separated. He was already dating somebody new. And he basically literally just said, sit down. And he just blurted out after like a minute of complete silence, two minutes of silence. He was just you know, maybe just, I don't know if he was trying to find the nerve. I mean, I later found out why, but I'll explain that in a second. But he just blurted out, look, I'm just going to tell you, your mother is dead. And so we found out that my mother had been brutally murdered. She had been beaten to death and her body had been left on the side of the road and it was discovered. And it was actually not that far actually from the police department. It was just an insane, it was an insane story. It was an insane time. And, you know, after, when, once she was gone, like I said, you know, when you think about how, you know, the gravitational pull of a planet like that, like that's what my mother was to me. And so when, when she was like gone and she disappeared like that, it was like all the, all the little planets that went around her just went spinning out. And so all of a sudden, I didn't have a place where I belonged. Um, my stepfather didn't want us. My biological father, like, what, it was like shit show of epic proportions. So my life literally changed in an instant. I lost my home. I lost my mother. I lost things that were familiar. I had to go live with an aunt and uncle that I didn't really know. And I stayed with them for about four and a half years till I went off to college, Boston University. And I was on my own from 17 on pretty much. And I was suffering a lot, as you can imagine, right? Like dead murdered mother, who does this, who, like who, this shit does not happen to you, right? Like even if you grow up in an environment where there's impending violence all the time, you don't think that that's going to happen. And especially not to the, to the person on the planet that you love the most, like unabashedly. And uh, it changed me and I suffered a lot and I felt victimized by the world and I felt like I was at the mercy of the world and that, um, you know, that the world was the cause of my unhappiness, that I was at the effect of whatever out external circumstances. But that was true for me as a 12 year old and a 13 year old and a 14 year old. Um, but here's what I knew at, at some point. I always love to read. I always love books. I'm a storyteller and a writer and a reader and books like saved me. Books saved me. And I, once I graduated from BU, I ended up moving out to California. And when I got out to California um, in 91, it was at the start of really like the self-help time. And like, you're too young to like know this, but this was the age of like Oprah and Marianne Williamson and Tony Robbins and Ayanla Van Zant and like, you know, um, Hay House, like, you know, all, all these Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, like all these guys were like pumping out books. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And back then there weren't coaches, there weren't spiritual mentors, like these, these gigs that you and I now currently have did not, did not exist. So books were my teacher. And I couldn't even afford books. So I used to just go to the bookstore and just sit on the floor and read stuff. And so slowly but surely, my introduction, you know, one day I, I was really into weightlifting and stuff like that. I became a personal trainer um, and I was in California. I had no car. I was taking the bus everywhere. Try to live in LA, like ha not have a vehicle. It's like hell. Um, so, but I would go to the bookstore all the time. And one time I was in the bookstore and because I was really into bodybuilding and all that and weightlifting and I was like walking towards the health section or the muscle section, whatever. And all of a sudden I heard a voice in my head. And um, it, it said, 
you should go to the self-help section because you could really use some help. Wow. Was it your and voice I, or was it someone else's voice? What it wasn't my own voice. I knew it wasn't mine. I knew it didn't belong to me. And I, and I often talk about how, you know, we always have the voice for Holy Spirit or spirit or the inner teacher. Some people call it intuition, gut instinct, knowing, I don't care what you call it. Um, that voice for love, you know, for the divine God source, whatever you call it, it is always there. But you know what voice always speaks first and is always loudest? The ego. And so I knew that voice really well too, because that little bastard was mean, right? Like, like that one, that's the voice that comes for you. You know what I mean? And it was neither of those. It was not a voice that I, that I recognized. So I knew it was something beyond me that was coming through me. And for whatever reason, I was smart enough to listen. And I walked over to, the, to, the, to that section and literally, literally nobody else is around me. And all of a sudden this book just goes poop and falls off the shelf and drops at my feet. And I was like, what the? <laughs> and like, I picked up this book and it was A Return to Love from Marianne Williamson, which I say is the gateway drug to, um, <laughs> to A Course in Miracles. Yeah. So that I couldn't afford the book at, at that moment, A Course in Miracles, because when I read it, like it says on the front, A Return to Love thoughts and reflections on the principles of A Course in Miracles. And I thought, first of all, the, 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 that version of the book, which I still have, she was like this on the cover, like, right? like that, that old shot from like Napoleon Dynamite, like the fist of the thing. And I was like, who's this broad? Like that, where I come from, we're always like, what's her story? Like, that's what we're thinking. So I pick it up, I read the title and I think, well, shit, I could use a miracle. <laughs> so I start to read the book and it was the first time that anybody had ever talked about quote unquote, God in that particular way. It was the first time that anybody talked about love and forgiveness in that particular way. What was that and it way? Was, uh, in, huh? what, in what way? What way did it explain it? Or what way did it, it, it did it, you know, language it in a way that, that resonated? Yeah. With hold on. I'm just trying to close out. Did you just hear that ding? Because I want to, I want I was trying to close out. Hold on one sec. So we don't get technology. That external, hey? I don't want that external noise. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up a Catholic kid and I often say like, I had a very short period of time where I was in Catholic school. We eventually got kicked out because my parents weren't paying the bills and we were just, I don't know, I don't think they were prepared to deal with us. Um, but so um, I was there for a very short period of time, but I often say that my time there, like the nuns taught me to fear God more than to love God. And it was taught to me that like God was something outside of myself. It was a conditional love that I had to earn. And if I wasn't good, I was going to hell. And I always thought that's kind of a screwed up thing. Like if God's all loving and merciful, I don't understand this other side where I'm being judged. Like, why is there even a judgment day? Like, I don't get this. And it never really, even though I was drawn to the magic and the mystery and the mysticism of like St. Francis and these cool saints and the compassionate mother Mary. And I just think Jesus is the coolest dude to like walk the face of the earth, you know, cause he was like love incarnate. There was so many things in the rituals and incense. There was so much in the, in the stained, like the buildings. I was like, Oh my God. So there were things about it. I loved the pews and even the ritual. Like the thing about Catholic kids is we like, prayed with our whole bodies. We sat and we stood and we kneeled and we got up and we walked to communion and we put our hands out. And we did the sign. We did these weird things, right? The rituals. And it was, I was like, I loved it. But at the same time, you know, the whole confession thing. And, and I had a situation with a priest one time where, uh, you know, he yelled at me one of these times in confession. And, and it, it really, really like, it, it changed me. And so when I went to the front of the church, I just said, and I'm going to, I haven't forgotten about the Marianne Williamson question, but when I, went to the front of the, when I went to the front of the church, after he yelled at me for not knowing my act of contrition, now little did he know, I'm like, you know, whatever it is, eight months out from having a murdered mother, my whole life has been blown apart. I'm still in shock. I'm probably having a, you know, a touch of the PTSD, living with total strangers, and he traumatizes me by like yelling at me in this place that's supposed to be a safe and sacred place. And my sister was outside, you know, the booth, I was calling it like the booth, you know, the panel, like the secret squirrel panel where they like slide it across. Like, and you, you, you immediately have to go in there as if you're a sinner. Like you're already like, I'm bad and beneath this thing. Mm -hmm. and it's just a messed up system sometimes. So I, after he like punished me, 
told me to go say my Hail Marys and all that shit. I went to the front of the church and I nailed down, kneeled down and I was raging. Like I was so pissed because I also had this quality of, you're not the boss of me. Don't tell me what to do. Like I always had a little bit of that authority problem. So I go to the front of the church, I look up and I see the statue of compassionate Mary. And I just knew like that motherly love that that's all I wanted. So I'm looking up at the statue and I'm feeling really connected to that. And then I look up at Jesus and I just say to him, you know, the big, the big, they always going to put the big crucified dead guy up there and you're cause, cause you're guilty and he died for your sins. And you're like, I didn't ask him to like yeah. Jesus, like, Oh my God. Right. So I'm sitting there. I just looked up at him and I said, that's it. I said, no more middlemen. If I got something to say to you, I'm saying it right to you. I'm like, that goes for you too, God. Right. Like, so yeah. I just, at that moment, I made a decision that I was cutting out the middlemen and I was going right to the source. And um, it, it was just, and it, and, but it was, it came from being embarrassed, um, humiliated, because my sister was right outside the box. So when, and I knew, I just knew, I'm like, oh my God, she's loving hearing him yell at me right now. And when I came out, she just had that shit eating, you know, siblings, you know, siblings, she had that shit eating grin on her face. And I was like, oh, I was, and she loved it. Like, I was like, oh, I was so mad. But that, God bless that priest because his behavior taught me to deepen my own relationship to source. But here's the thing. So circle back. Here's Marianne talking about God as God is um, love. That God doesn't forgive because God never condemned. And it was just like radical. It was just a radical way of looking at the divine. And it allowed me to decide for myself what God meant to me and how I was going to interact with, you know, so, so many mm. people, God, I always say, when did God become a dirty word? Mm. But because we resist the way that God or source or the divine was crammed down our th throats, perhaps, or the way that it was introduced to us when we were younger. That's why so many people say there, I'm a recovering Catholic, or I have no faith, or I don't go to church anymore, whatever that is. And it makes us be very defensive about this idea of holiness and, and, you know, relationship with something greater than us. And so a lot of people put up their dukes and they build these blocks and barriers to love. So one of the things I always say to people is like, stop cock blocking God. Like we've got to find a way to like lower our defenses, to be vulnerable and to have a relationship that we as adults, like now get to define. Well, how do you, how do you think people do that in terms of, because bringing up a lot of things around, around spirit, around God, around letting this divine flow through you, there are some blocks for people. There are, there are yes. things that come up in terms of, not feeling safe, you know, yes. in terms of uh, if I, if I love too much and I just allow, I'm going to be hurt. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways in which people lower those defenses to, so that this, this spirit can flow through? I mean, I think the key thing is there has to be, there has to be a container of trust. And so I think finding, finding either people or places it's like you, like you're wicked good at creating community. You create a safe community where people are welcome. Can we agree on that? I we think can. we can. So, you know, what you want, what you're trying to find really is either a community and whether that's a yoga studio, a meditation place, um, teachers, right? That, that I always say like, be so picky. If you, first of all, you have your own inner guru. The word guru simply means one who brings light to darkness, one who brings truth to ignorance. And we all have that built in. Nobody got skipped on the assembly line. We all have an inner guru and inner teacher. So if you are going to look outside of yourself for some sort of a teacher or a leader or a mentor or a coach or whatever, you better be wicked picky and do some homework and not just look at their in social media numbers and what they tell you, like pay attention, just step back for a little bit, watch how they show up in the world, have a conversation with them if you can, or watch enough and then trust, trust your gut. Even if you don't quite have a connection with quote unquote source or God or whatever first, your body is a really good communication device. 
So just slowing down and breathing and, and just tuning in. And one of the things I say to people is, so when you think about being whatever, close to this teacher or close in this community or in this space, how does your body feel? And if it contracts and tightens, that's a pretty good sign, right? If it feels like it softens and it opens because love doesn't happen in a contracted state. So it's like, so how do we lower our defenses? Well, you've got to find something or someone, um, a system, a process, a book, just begin with the most basic thing and ask, like, make sure that you um, get referrals. Like, um, you, you know, we know enough people, we're connected enough now that you can say, hey, does anybody know somebody? Knowing me, do you know somebody who might be a good fit? And if you have a lot of trauma, make sure your therapist is trauma-informed. If you have X, Y, and Z. So it means that we have to participate in our own healing. We have to take responsibility, not for the things that were done to you as a little kid. Like if somebody molested you or somebody harmed you or hurt you, you were a victim to their size, weight, power, you know, if they were the ones who were supposed to feed you and take care of you and not harm you and not touch you inappropriately. Of course, we were often victimized when we were little people. Once we're old enough, we have agency, we have authority, and we have the ability to now decide for ourselves, what am I going to do with these things that happened? And, and this is like where my whole process, your story to your glory comes from, where we take these stories from our past and through divine alchemy and this process that I have that we can transform it into our glory because otherwise we're just going to be dragging around our history and our emotional baggage and our trauma and we all have it but we all also like Helen Keller has a beautiful quote I'm going to butcher it a little bit so forgive me Helen Keller but it's something like you know the world is full of like traumas and tragedies. And it is also full of the overcoming of it. And that's what's interesting to me is knowing that there are tools and resources and things that we can put in what I call the spiritual toolkit that can help us to lower our defenses, that can help us to learn how to be more vulnerable and trusting, that can teach us how to start a daily spiritual practice. I call it a DSP. Like when we learn right? That we have a spiritual team, spiritual team on the job, that we yeah. have divine helpers that help us to align with the divine. And when we recognize that the assignment is alignment, when we can get into alignment with that, when we can shift our mind from fear to love, that's a miracle. And of course, in miracles, we say a miracle is a shift in perception in your mind from a thought system of fear to a thought system of love. And we can all do it. I love it. Let me, let me, before we get, before we get to back to like a spiritual practice or, or anything like that, I want to also talk about your, your story to glory type of framework and how you help people do that. But let's go back and close the loop around your story. What happens when you find the Marion Williamson book and just quickly give us an idea on how your life changed. What did you, what perspective change did you have from finding that book from that day in the library, did you make any different decisions? What, what was the, uh, yeah. So, that? yeah. So I was in a bookstore and let me just say this about libraries. I love libraries. I love libraries. I think giving a kid a library card is the greatest thing that you can do because it evens the playing field for poor kids and it makes worlds and knowledge like accessible to us and it doesn't cost a dime. So shout out to the librarians of the world. I love you. Number one. So it was just in a bookstore. What happened, um, Tyson, is that I read that book and along with talking about God and source and forgiveness, first of all, talk, she talked about forgiveness in a way. And she was talking about the principles of A Course in Miracles, which is like the peace of God through forgiveness. And I'm like, well, the forgiveness that I grew up with, there really was no forgiveness. It was like, I for an eye. Like you hit me, you come for me, I'm coming for you worse. So I was like, wait, what? So I knew my mother started coming to me in dreams. And she said, I've forgiven him, meaning her murderer, her killer. Mm. I've forgiven him. And now it's your turn. And I was like, I have no idea how to do that. So I get this book, A Return to Love. And she's talking about number one, 
this idea, this concept of God and love. Number two, this concept of forgiveness. And number three, she was talking about how my suffering, right? My perception was my choice. That I was responsible for my thoughts, my words, my actions, and how I wanted to feel and how, and like, I didn't know. I did not, I swear to God, I had no idea at that age in my early 20s that I had a choice as to how I felt, that I could change my mind. Nobody in my life, had, like, because when, you, when you're the kid of a murdered mother, anything you do you can get away with it because they're like, of course she's acting this way. Cause like, look what happened. So it was really easy to be a victim. I was a professional victim for like a little while there because I also found out that I got something out of the dead mother murder card. You know, it was like, oh, I could not turn in my math homework and they're going to cut me some slack. I could fill in the blank and they're going to cut me some slack. So I could have kept sliding along that route. Yeah. But when I recognized that, my suffering was a choice that I could choose to feel differently, that I could choose to see this through a new lens, that in fact, I was not at the mercy and the effect of the world, right? That I was the cause of the world I was experiencing, that my reality was made by me. It was like, holy shit, dude. And being a little bit of a control freak because my whole childhood had been out of control, it was so comforting to know that I could control that, that I had a choice. And so what happened is um, the, one of the first things I did, because Marianne lived in LA and she lectured weekly on A Course in Miracles at like different places. And um, I, one, the first thing I did when I got a vehicle is I started going to her lectures. And then she did a workshop on relationships at the Agape uh, Church, Michael, Reverend Michael Beckwith's place. And so I went and I got to meet him and whatever. And it's too long of a story. You don't have enough time. But um, I get up on the mic to ask a question about relationships. But I really ended up, something like took over my body and I ended up blurting out this thing about forgiveness. And she had me come up on stage and we had this very powerful healing, I don't know how to explain it other than experience. And afterwards, her people came up to me and said, she wants to talk to you. Long story short, it kicked off a relationship. Um, she called me, we ended up having a one-to-one -one session. Um, and then she invited me to come travel with her. She's like, I think you should come on these, this spiritual pilgrimage I'm doing. So over the course of a year, I went to Egypt um, for two weeks on a spiritual pilgrimage. And then right after that, I came back and then went right back out and went on a spiritual pilgrimage with her to England and Ireland. So to Stonehenge and all the, the holy places. And it just changed my life. And when we were in Ireland, she invited me to come um, like live and work work for her and with her. And so that like just launched that. And so like, I could never have planned this shit. Do you know what I'm saying? Like spiritual team on the job, just divinely guiding me. But I was willing to listen. Like when you're a spiritual seeker and when you open the doors and you say, I always say, you know, you can't ask the divine to guide your life and guide your steps. If you are not willing to move your own damn feet. And I was a kid who once I knew that there were better options <laughs> than suffering, I always say like suffering's a wicked good teacher until you get a better one. So when a new teacher came on the scene in the form of A Course in Miracles and books and Marianne, et cetera, et cetera, like I went in deep. Um, it wasn't always perfect, still, still very messy at times, but I was sincere, sincere in my efforts. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the obviously you're learning about love, about forgiveness, about your, your experience of life is, is choice. I want to, yes. I want to ask a few questions about your, when that shifted from hate to forgiveness for your, for your mum and the murder and the yeah. murderer, when did that happen? And, and what was that experience like? And, and because what I hear is there was an inner conflict of, I'm getting something by being a victim. Yes. And the reason why I want to ask this is because a lot of people don't really realize sometimes that their problems are giving them something. Their problems are meeting some unconscious needs 
that they're unaware of. And it seems like for you, you got a lot of different things and you, uh, you know, you were the victim. So a lot of people cut you slack and all those different things. What was the moment like when you started realizing there's a different option and what would it, what did it take for you to implement that different uh, option of forgiveness? And what was that inner conflict like where you had to sort of break away, you know, sort of things that it was giving you in order to receive forgiveness? What was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, let's just say this. I tried a lot of things that weren't helpful first, right? Like booze and drugs and smoking cigarettes. And like, you know, I think the first time I got drunk, I was 12. The first time I got high, I was 12. The first time I smoked a cigarette, you know, messing around, I was like eight years old. Like I was always getting into things, you know? Um, And then later it becomes um, shopping, sex, like other things, right? To distract yourself, to numb yourself. So I tried a lot of different things and none of that shit worked, number one. But really what happened, Tyson, and I, I just want to state for the record, right? Like it can be sometimes weird telling these stories because I understand that, that my, my story is not special. It's just that the details are a little bit different. But I think that there is universal in specificity. Like in, in the personal story, there are always going to be places where we can universally say, I get that. I understand that. So I'll just say this. So- there's a quote, um, Leonard Cohen, uh, the great, you know, songwriter, whatever he became famous for, but really started with Rumi, the great Sufi poet Rumi. And Rumi basically says, you know, that there is a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. And, uh, and then Leonard Cohen put it in a famous song. That's really what happened. There was a crack. And I'll tell you the story of the crack and the light got in. And so what happened is here I am, I'm at BU, I'm by myself, um, you know, I'm so terrified that I'm going to flunk out of college. Uh, I'm there, but literally, like on the first day of college, my aunt and uncle, you know, I, I had a car, a little like, you know, friend used car, I drove to Boston, and they followed behind me with my shit from my bedroom, and they brought me on my first day of school, and they left, and they never came back. So I was literally on my own, and I was like, okay, trying to figure out the world in school and college and whatever. So I get there. I didn't have a phone in my room the first year because I didn't think I could afford it. I was really afraid like about spending money. And like, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so um, it was, I was suffering like a lot and it was around um, finals. It was finals time. It was December, um, December, I want to say 1986. Um, And here's all I know. They caught the guy that killed my mother. And when my mother died, it was like, even though it was on the TV and it was in the news and it was on in the paper and like all this stuff, the radio, whatever, anytime it came on or whatever, it was like shut off immediately. So it was literally like my mother disappeared overnight. And I was the kind of kid where not knowing what really happened was worse for me than having the graphic details. Like some people are just like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I was the opposite of that. Like I had a very rich imagination and my mantra as a kid was like, why mom? Why mom? mom?" Like I felt better knowing why and I needed to understand. I had no idea why this guy killed my mother. All I knew was that he took my favorite person on the planet, the only place, the only place that I actually felt safe. So now I'm just like out in the world, terrified. Now I'm terrified because he beat her to death. So now I'm literally, I'm afraid of the world. I I don't know if I can trust men. I don't know that she was found half naked from the waist down. So I'm like, I think he was trying to rape her. Like there were all these elements that were just so painful. And so- All I knew was, and this is a fantasy in my mind, like, let's be really clear. I don't know that the prison was really going to let me talk to him, but I had a plan. I went in my freshman year at BU, I was 17, um, but I was going to turn 18 and I did. And so right before, right after I turned 18, I was like, I'm going to go to the, I'm an adult now. I'm going to go to the prison and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to ask him to his face. Why did you do this? That was my plan. And I had it all figured out, right? Because once I knew why, once I had the, the reason from this external source, then I could have peace. Then I could be, you know, not maybe happy, but I could have some inner comfort and peace because I would at least understand why this thing happened. Because why, why would somebody want to beat my mother to death? Like, it just made no sense, right? So um, 
my boyfriend at the time, um, I didn't have a phone in my room. So I'm down in the lobby. I call him from a pay phone and I get on the phone and he's being like suspiciously nice to me. <laughs> like, like he was always nice, but I was like, mm, so you know, when something's going on. And I was like, Hey, Francis, like what's happening? So the guy that killed my mother, his last name was Caravo. So after a couple of minutes, he just blurts out. So here I am. Now, nobody knows. This is an inner, like, this is a thing I kept close to my chest that I'm going to go and talk to this guy at the prison and finally get my answers, right? So he, he, all of a sudden, he just blurts out, Caravo is dead. And I was just devastated because now not only am I not going to get the answers, now I'm going to have to keep suffering because I don't have the answers. And this guy held all the power. He knew what really happened that night. So whatever, long story, I run upstairs, I freak out, I cry. Like I, I just have a total meltdown, devastated. So I finished my finals like two days later, a day and a half later, I go and uh, I just drop some, I go um, home. Uh, whatever home means, because I really don't have a home because I don't live anywhere. Like my aunt and uncle dropped me off. I literally have no home now. So on the holidays and breaks, I'm like, where am I supposed to stay? So a lot of times I just crashed at my, my sister's house or whatever. But I, I came home and at the holidays, we would go to my stepfather's house. We would go many places. We'd go to my aunt and uncle's. We'd go to my grandparents. We'd go to my, you know, my, my stepfather's house. And I walk in the door, my sister's behind me, we come in. And now my stepfamily, I'm like an Irish kid. My stepfamily is like all Italian and Portuguese. You know, they're loud. There's all this food on the table, Crown Royal, calamari, marinara, like everybody's fucking making a lot of noise. And when we came into the alcove, they couldn't see us, but we could see and hear them. And I hear my uncle Manny, right? Like he's got his friggin' glass and he's like going like ding, 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 ding. He wants to make a toast. I'm like, oh boy, here we go, my uncle Manny. And he literally goes like, he raises the glass and he says, to Paul Caravo, May that cocksucker rot in hell. And everybody's like, salute. You know, everybody's cheering. And I just like in that moment, here's the crack. In that moment, I realize whatever's going on inside of me in that moment, I don't feel the way that the rest of them do. What and what you, I what realized in that moment, I, well, I'm going to tell you what I felt was, pretty bad because I knew that this man who had taken his own life, he hung himself in prison, that he was also somebody's son and he was also somebody's husband and he was also somebody's dad. And I knew that he had little, little kids younger than me at that time. So at that time I'm 18 and I'm like, I think his kids were like something like maybe five or like little kids. And the thought that ran through my head, honestly, and I'm just going to be blunt and I have a potty mouth. So I forgive, lift his little ears, just block them ahead of time. And what I said was, what kind of fucking Christmas can they be having right now? Like I got my family in this room cheering, saluting, you know, and I'm just standing there and I am struck like with like, ah, and boom, that's when spirit said, we have an opportunity here because compassion has entered the room. And as soon as I felt that, there was an opportunity for healing. There was an opportunity for forgiveness because it was the moment that I stopped seeing him as a monster, literally. And I started to see him as a deeply flawed human being. And what happened, Tyson, is that I met him in that moment with curiosity instead of judgment. Because I also had the thought, what had to have happened to him and his life and his childhood that could make him capable? So I'm finally gonna answer the question about how do I end up being a spiritual mentor, which is this. It really occurs to me, not in that moment, but later on, it occurs to me when I started to leave with curiosity and wanting to understand people's stories. I think when you know somebody's story, like you really are willing to listen, it is almost impossible to understand them in some way. It's almost impossible not to forgive them. And you might find that you come to love them or at the very least have deep compassion for them. And so what I realized is, well, if this guy... You know, they say hurt people, hurt people. 
And I always say happy people tend not to hurt people, not on purpose anyway. And what I realized is that this guy had no capability in that moment for whatever he was feeling, whatever rage, whatever, whatever came up in him that he could kick and punch my mother to death. He did not have the ability to pause. He did not have the ability to control his emotions or himself. He did not have any spiritual tools in his toolkit to stop. And I just think to myself, Jesus, if this guy knew prayer or meditation or breath work or the pause or the ability to just stop. So in that, in that rumble between his madness, if, if, if Holy Spirit or spirit or whatever, a pause had a chance in between thoughts and actions, if this guy had had some spiritual tools, my mother might still be alive. Mm. And let me ask you a couple of questions because when, what's the overall meaning you're giving it now? Because if the meaning beforehand was all about him and, and, and hatred and you needed these answers and if you didn't have these answers, then your life was going to be in turmoil. Now that yeah. you had this awakening of, of forgiveness and compassion and healing, yeah. What's the, the, what's the meaning you give it now in terms of, in terms, was, was it meant to happen? Is it all still in divine timing? Is it something that happens for you? What's the, what's the meaning? Now oh yeah. I mean, look, I mean that, yes, that, that phrase, right? Like, and who knows who said it first? I remember Tony Robbins saying it back in like 91 or two um, that, you know, some version of, um, well, Tony, I remember Tony saying back then that, you know, um, we'll keep doing what we need to do until it becomes too painful for us to stop. So I knew my old way like wasn't working, but here's what I will say. We've all heard that phrase, right? It's not happening to me. It's happening for me. It doesn't feel that way when you're in it. And a lot of spiritual wisdom that we glean often comes with time, age, doing the fucking work daily, daily dedication. I call it the, the five D's of DSP, the five D's of daily spiritual practice, which is daily, non-negotiable, dedication, determination, discipline, and devotion. So I just feel like I look back now and I think if I had not lost my mother when I did, how I did, I would not be who I am today. I would not be doing this work. Joseph Campbell talks about it like, you know, that dark cave, that dark cave that you fear to enter. It holds the treasure that you seek. And that's the, you know, the arc of the story to glory. It's like knowing that we're, we're living our stories, whether we know it or not. Everybody has stories and telling stories is a total fucking blast until your story starts to tell you that you're not good enough, you're not lovable, you're not worthy. I'm really into looking at the, the stories of our lives, our shitty first drafts, as Anne Lamott calls them, <laughs> these shitty first drafts, and then revising them, assigning new meaning to them. Because so often the things that happen to us, we're at ages when our brains are literally not even fully developed. We don't have the emotional maturity or capacity to understand that it wasn't our fault, that we were lovable. That it wasn't like, you know, we really do feel victimized when we're five and eight and 12 and 15 and whatever. If we don't stop at some point when we get older and look at it, and that's what I believe. I believe that we have a deep spiritual um, glory. I always say, right, I was saying it before we get on the call, like that inner GPS, which I always say is God's pretty smart. And we're always trying to just like navigate, like white knuckling everything. <laughs> like we're always just like, ah, but when we like slow down and we start to develop a deeper relationship to self and source and spirit, miracles become possible and things yeah. can change. So I wouldn't go back like, look, of course, of course, do I wish my mother was still alive? Yes. But I think that what happened as brutal, grotesque, awful, violent, vicious, um, as it was, and I've seen the photos, I'm writing a memoir, I've gone and looked at the physical evidence twice, and it is horrifying. Um, but I will still say this, that um, there is a glory that lies within that story. And it was one of the greatest gifts. It was one of the greatest gifts that ever happened to me because it transformed me. It made me a much more deeply um, conscious and compassionate um, and empathetic 
human being. I, 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 it's why I'm vegan. It's why I've been vegan for 18 years because I, I cannot bear the thought of participating in the suffering of other beings consciously and knowingly because I know that all beings want to live. I know that my mother tried. She tried to get away from him because she wanted to live. I know she fought for her life. So there's just no way. There's just no way. Like I look back, everything, everything. I always like, again, my little sign, it says spiritual team on the job for a reason because it's all unfolding. Call it divine timing. Call it divine grace. Call it, you know, kismet. Call it coincidence. Call it synchronicity. Call it dharma. I don't care what, we all have, we have all these names. Here's what I know. The divine loves me. The divine uses me. I have an individual curriculum and assignment. I have to be brave enough to accept it. I have to show up. You know, Robert Drowneth Tagore has this beautiful quote where he says, everything that belongs to you, everything that is yours will come to you if you create the capacity to receive it. And I think in spiritual work, we are creating the capacity to receive whatever shows up at our door. And that. sometimes, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's just stop cool. me because I could. I could well, just here's the thing. I, we can definitely, we, we definitely can, can feel and hear why you're a storyteller. Thank um, you. Honey. But the, I, I would just love to just let you go for hours because this is, just, <laughs> there's so much, there's so much, I didn't, I didn't even have to ask any questions. There's so much wisdom that people are taking away here. There's so much guidance. And I can feel that people are hearing your story, but also at some level applying it to their own life, whether it be in their personal relationships, whether it be in their business, right? They're, they're taking this way. But before we finish up, I want to quickly just ask you a couple of questions before you can share where yes. people can find you. But what are three things in hearing all of this? Yes. What do you think are the three major takeaways that someone can just someone can hone in and start to practice in their, in their everyday world. What are the, what are the three lessons that you sort of learn by going through all this that someone else can apply in their life right now? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think we, um, we have to let go of the idea that we have to do it all on our own. Mm. I think that finding whether, like I said, it's a group, a mentor, a coach, um, or even you just finding your own inner teacher and inner wisdom. So creating space where your spiritual, here's the thing that's so interesting. Like it's a business podcast, right? Your whole life is your spiritual life. Your business is your spiritual life. Your lovemaking is your spiritual life. The food you eat, where you shop, the way you talk to yourself and others, your whole life is your spiritual life. So if we don't create space for deeper knowing of our true selves, we are literally like little zombies and robots and puppets, like just walking through the world, being tossed about by our reactions to everything. So I think it's so important that we create quiet time and sometimes quiet time. You know, if you have a trauma, if you have a lot of trauma, sitting for meditation and prayer can be next to impossible. If you have a lot of PTSD being still. So there are ways to be with the divine God source, love, whatever the universe, whatever higher power, whatever you want to call it. Um, where you can do walking meditation. So I think it's a combination. I always say like to me, prayer is when we talk to source, God, love. Meditation is when we listen. So we have to become generous listeners. We have to become, um, so I always talk about it like we have to, first of all, I call it the four C's and the four A's. I know you asked for three things, but it's really like we, we have to be willing to have clarity and awareness and then we have to have compassion and acceptance for whatever is going on, whoever we've been, you know, uh, coming from our past and our histories. And then the, the step that so many people skip because they want to go right to action, right? I always say, no, 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 no. We have to recognize there's a problem, clarity and awareness. We have to have compassion for ourselves, how we got there and, and this, whatever it is, not this acceptance, this self-forgiveness and love. Then we have to have connection and alignment. And that's the missing piece. That's why I'm not a life coach. It's why I'm not a, I am a spiritual mentor on purpose because I think spirit 
is the missing piece. I think a lot of us have spiritual amnesia and I think we need to sit our asses down and whether, again, that's a walking meditation. Some people, some traumatized clients I've had in the past, they like to row or do something repetitious, like riding their bike or running. That's when, that's when they are able to get quiet enough to drop in. So it's not for me to tell you what you should do, but please be curious enough about how you feel most connected to whatever you call it. And I think that it's so important that we create trust and we create trust by spending time. Like if you were going to create a relationship with somebody new and women know this intuitively, if we're going to have a deep relationship with somebody new, what do we need to do? Spend time together, ask questions, talk, deeply listen. That's how trust is built. And it's no different with your spiritual team your inner teacher, Holy Spirit, God source, whatever you call it. There is nothing, there is nothing more important, I think, on this planet than deepening your connection to yourself, source, and spirit, because that is what's ultimately going to improve your relationship with everything else in your life. I agree. Totally agree. I think there was three in there. <laughs> I don't know. There's I a lot. I, I'm not really good at doing bulleted. No, it, it was my, uh, that was my, I, I just wanted to see if you could throw three out there, but there's probably about 15 in there that people can. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> but no, this is awesome. This is so cool. Uh, how can people find out more about you and what you're doing and about your, about the nest and all these different things you've got going online? Where can people find out more about you? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the best place is to just go right to my website, which is Karen Kenny, K-E-N-N-E-Y.com. And on there, they'll be able to, but my new website's about to be launched any day now. So they'll be able to find out about spiritual mentoring, um, my course in miracles, mini course, the nest, which is my spiritual membership and uh, community uh, writing work, like all of it in my podcast, the Karen Kenny show, it's like one-stop shopping. And then on Instagram, it's just, um, you know, Karen Kenny live, L-I-V-E. Same thing on Facebook, same thing on Instagram, same thing on LinkedIn, same, you know, all the places. So all if the you places. just, if you just Google, if you just Google it, you'll find me eventually. You know what awesome. I mean? Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, no doubt people are going to want to check out the podcast and hear you just, just shout wisdom that they can basically improve their life and improve their, their spiritual connection to themselves and to, and to with spirits. So, I mean, everyone's going to want to jump on and, and get on board, but I want to thank You're you so for just kind. sharing your story, getting on here and just being very open, vulnerable, honest in a way that's from a place of compassion and service. I think that's what, you know, you're clearly living it and being the example of what you teach. So I think that's what's most important, but Thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you want to add in that just will make this, this conversation and this interview feel complete? I just want to say thank you so much, sweetheart, because you are such a kind and generous host. And in the short time that I've come to know you and I've seen you in action a few times, um, I, I also, and I'm not a tit for tat person. I don't just say things to say them. I don't just say things to be nice, but I've seen you in action and I really feel like you are living your purpose, that you are in divine alignment and that you are answering the call of your heart and your spirit and that you're in service to something greater than you. And I think that, you know, your listeners, one of the things why Michelle and Damien, our mutual friends were like, you have to be on a show is that they're like, they know I'm wicked picky, first of all. Uh, and I'm like, I only want to talk and it sounds mean, but I don't mean it that way. But I want to be associated. I always say the only, the only things I have in this world are my name, right? My name, my word, my reputation, and my voice. So who I associate with, who I collaborate with, um, I'm very particular about that. And if, and if I find out something that I don't like, like I will like do what I need to do. But you are so genuinely in service. In fact, I, do I have it? Okay. You, I, this is how much, you don't even know this. I wrote this quote down because I just want to read something. One of my first times meeting Tyson, this is what he said. He said, who can I send your way that will be an ideal client or collaborator? And he says, so to be in service is to, um, is to basically to, to let go of any expectation of like getting anything in return. And I thought, this is a person I want to know. Because this is a person who genuinely cares about others and gives and gives with no expectation. And that, that is a rare and beautiful and powerful thing. So just thank you 
for inviting me in and for hosting me and for having me because this is how we're going to do it, brother. You know, Ram Das, the last thing I'll say, Ram Das so beautifully says, we're all just walking each other home. And this is one of the ways that we do it is we do it together and you make it a little bit easier. Wow. Thank you. I, I, I could let you talk all day. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll stop you there. Thank you so much for your kind words. Um, I'll definitely be, definitely be uh, reviewing that on the recording. So it was just so sweet. I appreciate it. And uh, I, anytime you want to jump into the serving circle, anytime you want to get on the call, you know where to find me because this is so impactful. I love the work you're doing. I love the energy at which you do, uh, uh, what you do it from. Oh, and um, you, happy to be on this journey with you. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Awaken Your Business podcast. If you're a heart-centered business owner, you know that selling, marketing, and business strategy can bring up a lot of fear, doubt, and scarcity. And this is why I created the community on Facebook called The Serving Circle. It's in here where you get to grow your business as a byproduct of asking the question, how may I serve? It's on our weekly Zoom collaborative calls where you get to serve by meeting like-minded people and organizing collaborations, service exchanges, and partnerships so together we can heighten consciousness through business success. So just search The Serving Circle in your Facebook groups and you'll see that you're just one heartfelt collaboration away from reaching your biggest business goal. Take care now.